Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. It's me again. I know. You thought this show was over. We went to Cuba. We left my dad there. Journey complete. Well, not quite. To make this podcast, I had a ton of conversations with all sorts of people. Historians, survivors, family members, friends. Inevitably, there were some great moments that didn't make it onto the show, but that really stuck with me. And I want to share one of those conversations with you now. Well, Karen, we kind of have this crazy thing in common. Uh, Both of our parents had Alzheimer's. Yeah. Karen Kilgariff is a comedian and co-host of the podcast My Favorite Murder. Um, What was your mom's name? (laughs) I thought you were going to say, what was that like? <laughs> it was easy. It was it was kind of light, um, went quickly. My mom's name was Pat Kilgariff. Pat was a head nurse at a psychiatric hospital before she got Alzheimer's. She died from the disease on January 9th, 2016. My dad died a year later, and it's made me feel connected to Karen in this weird way because we're both in this sad club that no one ever wants to join. So I was like, let's get in the studio and talk about our parents. Tell me about her before she got sick. What was she like? Um, she was she was always a working mom in my life. Um, and she was always kind of just large and in charge, you know? She's like head nurse style personality. Both of her parents growing up were alcoholics, and she was an only child. So she had this thing of, like, nothing is going to happen to you that happened to me when I was growing up. That reminds me kind of my dad was like, he suffered a lot as a kid, and so for us, he was like, you guys are never going to suffer. Yeah, Just right? like, nothing's going to happen. This is, you're impenetrable if I am here. Like, yes, th- like that old shit stops here. I read that when you guys would walk down the street, she would like diagnose people's mental disorders as yeah. you walked by them. Yes. When did that start? Um, I feel like for as long as I can remember, she was the person who, if there was like, Uh, a person, you know, like maybe a homeless person or whatever that was like going through the garbage talking to themselves, she would just be like, oh, he's gone full organic. You know, (laughs) it was always just kind of like, he's a schizoid personality. She was, and it came out of her mouth automatically. That's so funny. Yeah. My dad was kind of paranoid. uh, And so he would kind of do the opposite. He would tell me what people thought of him as we walked by them. (laughs) Like, I remember, that what, sounds like me. <laughs> I know. I remember walking through Golden Gate Park with him one time when he came to visit me, me in San Francisco, and he's like, oh, ese ruso cree que son comida porque no trabajando. Like he, was, he said, that Russian guy thinks I'm, he thinks I'm a jerk because I'm in between jobs. But guess what? I'm on disability, man. <laughs> like he had made up a whole story, <laughs> which I, is so funny. You wrote this really um, sweet tweet on the anniversary of your mom's death that said that she was a real badass. Yes. What? does that mean to you? What's a badass to you? My mom was the person that if somebody was yelling in public, she would take care of it. She was the first person to step forward. And she was a de-escalator. So it wasn't like she was confrontational. She just took care of things. She made things go away. And she made things stop being bad. She just always handled it. Was it difficult to see her not handle things once uh, dementia took hold? I mean, that was the horror of it, is it was a different person. So it was this, she, you know, once she retired, um, my mom and my dad were happily married their whole lives. And when she retired from work, um, she started kind of doing less and less. And then we could tell that it was because 
you know, she was starting to forget things and starting to get uncomfortable and not trust herself. So she kept talking about she was going to go volunteer here and she was going to go do this, but she'd never actually do it. And she ended up just kind of being in the house and sweeping a lot. And my sister and I, it made us crazy. And we kept talking about the sweeping as if it was like a funny joke or like stop doing that. But really what it was is we all knew this was this weird coping mechanism for her being afraid to leave. She kept pretending there was too much to do around the house. She was scared because they know part of them. They don't completely know, but part of them knows that something's going on. Yes, that something's wrong. And so they resort to something like my father would um, he would start taking things apart. Like, he stayed at home, yeah. but he'd be like, take a door apart. But he's a mechanically-minded person yeah. that normally would do something like that. He just had to always tinker with things, and he just kept on tinkering. Even to, like, I remember he started tinkering with silverware and making sure it was, like, bent properly. <laughs> like, he's doing all this weird stuff, but I was like, that's my dad knowing that's how his brain works, but he's trying to hide it either from us or he just doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, almost like they're they're using that as like a comfort, what they go to, where it's this is the thing that soothes me. I know if I sweep up all the dog hair that's in this and then my kitchen floor is clean, I can feel better and I can calm down. But, of course, that wasn't it, you know, and it didn't work. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw her being off where you're like, whoa, this is serious. This isn't my mom, 100% my mom anymore. Yeah, and it was really— <laughs> It was uh, it was very scary, and it was also kind of like one of those, I can remember it like a movie in my head. Um, she used to always pick me up uh, when I would fly up from L.A. So um, I flew up, and it was nighttime. And my dad would never do it if it was nighttime because he had bad night vision. Um, so she would always do it, and everything was normal, and we were driving home. And she did this thing where she took the exit before the exit to the San Rafael Bridge. And she did it in this way where all the, it looked like, it seemed like all of a sudden she was waking up. And then she just took this exit really fast. And it was nighttime, and it was the wrong exit. And all of a sudden we were off the freeway somewhere else. And I was like, what are you doing? And it hit me before I think I knew consciously what was really going on. It hit me like... It, like really emotionally and I got really mad at her for and then she's like I'm sorry I just didn't realize and it's like but we've taken this drive literally 150 times so there's no way you didn't and I was like she can't be in charge anymore like she can't come pick me up anymore and we still hadn't talked about it it was shocking because my mother was a medical professional my father was you know a first responder type yeah. it's like you we all know you know and you've seen these signs. And it was the same thing of sunglasses in the freezer. That was one of the first. And it's bone chilling. It's like yeah. any horror movie pales in comparison to these little tiny weird things where you're like, oh, this isn't my mom anymore. Yeah. No one's holding down the fort. It's, it's, they, it's like watching someone slowly devolve like almost back into a child. Yeah. In a way. I had a friend who was like, how is everything with your mom? And I went, you know what it's like? And said, it's like the movie Jaws, except for the shark is like way far away and you just have to wait for the shark to come. So you know it's coming and you're just fucking treading water and you're freaked out and everything you see is making you flinch, but it's not there and it's not there. And after a while, you just want the fucking shark to come. After a while, you're rooting for the shark because you can't take 
the real-time, 24-7 horror show of life suspense anymore. You just want it to be over. You want because it's like stripped completely of their dignity, yeah. completely of all their faculties, and you're like, please, just make it stop. It's a cruel disease because there's no solution to it, and it'll drag on for 10, 15, I think the average, once you get it, I think the average lifespan is like 10 years. But sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 20. My mom's was 12. Yeah, yeah. it's such a cruel Death. What was it like? Were there moments when, you know, the shark's coming, (laughs) but you're like, oh, there she is. That's my mom again. Like, we've talked about this before. It's like one of the toughest things that once they, you know, become sick, they'll have these flashes of themselves when they're totally lucid. What were those moments for you and your mom? I mean, here's the worst one, and I'll definitely cry as I tell you this. My sister was putting her to bed one night or like one evening and she would do these weird things. It was the sundowning thing where she would get real anxious around seven and she would always say she wanted to take a nap and then you'd take her upstairs to take a nap and then she'd start fighting you like a child that doesn't want to go to bed, which is like sickening to me with the way my mother is and was. She was just so not like that. It was like she would never even tell you if she was going to take a nap. It would just be none of your business and the door would shut. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't a thing. So anyway, my sister was helping her get into bed. And then my mom was like, I don't want to go to bed and doing this weird stuff. And my sister started crying and was like screamed at her, said something mean. And my mom grabbed my sister's arm and looked her in the eye. And they're staring at each other. And she goes, you do know I love both of you, don't you? Oh, my gosh. And then and my sister was like, and she had been gone. She hadn't been coming back anymore. We were way past that point. So that like that idea that you could talk to any real part of my mom was so gone. And it was like she came back to make up for all the horrible, you know, like she said shit like she told everybody at Easter uh, that she never wanted to have kids. <laughs> Which <laughs> is so, it was like, as everyone's quietly talking in the kitchen, yeah. so there's like 30 people in the kitchen, and then it just, you know, the the 20 minutes conversational lull hits, and it gets a little bit quiet, and my, you hear my mom across the room, well, I never even wanted kids, and she's talking to my three aunts, and all my aunts start talking at once, like they can cover it up, you yeah. know what I mean, like they're going to be able to mute what just happened, so there was like, there was so much shittiness that was unintentional and it was the disease and that was her her bad past, you know? It wasn't really about us. It was about her kind of old damage. But then she still fucking broke through, you know, at the 11th hour just to grab my sister's arm. And it was like, my sister told me that and I, like, thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. It was so, I mean, it meant so much, you It's know? such a beautiful thing and I think it's like a double-edged sword because part of it is so difficult because you see them and you're like, oh, there she is again. That's mom. Yes. And then it's like, it's just never going to happen again. But then you hold on to those and that'll keep you going for a week (laughs) or like a month. And those are the moments we really remember. I I think the the thing that was harder for me than her coming back every once in a while was, and I don't know if you had this or we ever talked about this. I used to have dreams that she was normal all the time. And we'd just be standing around and she would be totally normal. And then I'd be like, you don't have Alzheimer's. You're fine. And she'd be like, quiet, quiet, shh, shh, shh. And like, <laughs> like it was an inside joke. Like, <laughs> like a, yeah, she a was long... tricking people or something. And I'd be like, you can't do this. You've upset everyone so much. And just recurring, I would say twice weekly dreams that my mom was normal and hiding it. 
those were the worst to me because I would wake up just being like, wait, that's not real, right? Okay. And then, you know, you know what's so wild to me, Heron, is that, okay, we're talking about death here. And you constantly talk about death. Yeah. On your podcast. Yeah. My favorite murder, like in grisly detail. And the first episode came out four days after your mother passed away. Is that is right? Is that right? <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> Um, Jan- my mom died uh, January 12th of 2016. So, yeah. I tried to go back and listen to episodes around that time of My Favorite Murder to see if you were affected at all. <laughs> and I was like, I think Karen maybe is a murderer. <laughs> I cannot tell. She is not affected by this at all. She is ice cold. She is playing it off really well. What was that like? Is that Did that feel crazy to talk about death so much right after your mom had died? Well... It didn't for a couple reasons. One was because I got into therapy, thank fucking God, around 2003, I think it was. So I was processing, and my mom and I didn't get along great um, in our previous relationship. So it wasn't like this thing where it was like the great—I mean, she was a great mom, but she and I had interpersonal problems that we never solved, that we never got a chance to solve. Um, That's a hard thing to say. But— the so I was in therapy just dealing almost like with my therapist about the problems that I had with her because I knew I would never be able to deal with her uh, or talk to her about them or apologize or any of that. Uh, but that was so consistent. And I mean, I really, I really worked on that part of the guilt and the I think that part can really kill you. If you, I think a lot of people talk about Alzheimer's. And dealing it with with their parents from this, like, they were the best, and now it's so sad, and now they died, and it was all so great. But if you have any kind of a issue with that parent, there's already so much guilt, and then you have even more because you were like, I wasted time, and I was selfish, and I did what I wanted, and all these things. I try to think of the things that she was yelling at me during those fights. I was so convinced she wasn't hearing me that I never listened to anything she said. And so now I hear, you know, she was always just trying to tell me, like, get health insurance. (laughs) It was really basic shit. It was like, call your family, make sure that they know you care about them. You, like, show up for things. Like, stop being so selfish. And I just try to, instead of thinking of it as the problem between she and I— I try to think of it as like this was advice I was I was refusing to acknowledge I needed and now I can acknowledge I definitely need it and I need it every day. Yeah. And just try to like pull that back in so there's not cuz I know for a fact and I bet you this is true for your dad too. They would not want us to be sitting here like, you know, flogging ourselves for the failures of the relationship because that's every parent-child relationship. Yeah. That's the definition of you know, you don't nobody gets out unscathed in a parent-child relationship and especially mother-daughter it's like it's tough it's it's really tough so I know that she wherever she is I'm positive she (laughs) watches me I'm positive she has an effect on my life to this day and I know that she was so not about guilt she was like she would say it all the time in normal life where it'd be like no don't even that's not that's not your problem or don't live like that like life is short and you have to be the happiest you can be all the time we're going to take a quick break more with Karen Kilgariff in a minute 
are you and your sister, um, do you guys share a lot emotionally? Have you yes. always? We always have. It's different now because now it's the best it's ever been. We talk to each other pretty much every day, and she's my best friend. But during my mom being sick, there was just so much tension, and there's so much anxiety, and there was so much— um, there was just so much to manage at one time. And as we lost my mom more and more, we would tell each other. Like the first time I had the experience where I was trying to put mom to bed and she fought me and I yelled at her and then I scared her and she kind of went like, I- I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and apologized to me. And then I couldn't stop crying because it was so awful. I t- <laughs> this, is, this is like gallows humor, like crazy, but... Um, So one night my sister came to get me and that had happened and it was really bad and I had to tell my sister because I felt like I'd done that so badly and it was like I yelled at our sick mom and like, what's wrong with me? And my my sister goes, are you fucking kidding me? I do it every time. And I was like, wait, what? And she goes, she drives you crazy. Of course you yell at her. And I was like, oh my God. Like I felt... I felt like I was like borderline elder abuse, how mad I got. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, she makes you that mad. That's that's what we're all doing all the time. And then I go, I said, in the middle of like really bad sobbing, I just go, I just want her to die. And I said it so dramatically of like, can you believe I mean saying this? And my sister goes, oh, please, you don't think I don't think about spiking her shit with Abilify every time I go over there? Because <laughs> remember that Abilify commercial where they were like, it could cause death in Alzheimer's patients? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> My sister had already made a plan of, like, how she could actually end this fucking horror show. In the middle of crying, she she said that. And then we both were laughing so hard where it's just like, this is a nightmare. We are in a fucking nightmare. And we're just reacting like normal fucked up people that have been thrown in a nightmare with no training or preparation or anything, yeah. I think. You know— Funny thing, you know, my dad's kind of the cornerstone of my stand-up set, <laughs> and he always has. Like, <laughs> yes. even when I first started 13 years ago, I would talk about my dad. Of course. And then he died. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't want to talk about him anymore for a second. <laughs> we can't just keep on talking about him. <laughs> yeah, come on. I know. He's, he's my thing. But, like, do you um, did you talk about your mom in your stand-up at all? You know what's funny? I tried—I um, was the head writer at the Ellen DeGeneres show from 2003 to 2008. And I did not do stand-up comedy in that time. I tried to do it a couple times in the very beginning at Largo. And I went back there one time after one of the first visits home where there was moldy bread and there was, you know, sunglasses in the freezer and all the really upsetting things. And I tried to do a stand-up set about it. And my favorite joke that I wrote about it was, I was like, when I found the moldy bread, I was like, are you guys going to make food for ghosts? Because everything in here is old and rotten. And you could have heard a pin drop. This The audience was horrified. It wasn't funny enough to where it clearly wasn't processed. Yeah. And it was one of the worst sets I've ever had. And at the end, this was a thing Greg Fitzsimmons used to when he was on the show. He would always go last. And then he would do his whole set making fun of everybody else's set is yeah. one of my favorite things. And that night, he skipped me. And I was so angry at him, and I was so bummed out. And I was like, I did as bad as I thought I did. And I went up to him after the show, and I was like, was my set really that bad that you had to skip me? And he grabbed my arm and goes, it was so sad. And then I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I don't even know where I am right now. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know why I'm saying it. I'm in a complete panic. And this isn't funny. This is the breakdown of my family. So 
I just went to work and stopped performing and basically for the next five years just was a TV producer and writer, essentially, and got out of it. And then when I left that show, I started doing all kinds of stuff again. I was doing stand-up and I was doing music and I was doing all kinds of things. And I actually wrote up a story version of that night that my mom took the wrong exit. Yeah. And it actually came out amazing where it was that kind of thing where I went, I need to express this sadness accurately and honestly and not try to put this veneer of comedy on it because that's not how I feel about it. Yeah. And that's also why when the first time I saw you do it, I adored it and admired it so much because it was simultaneously sincere and pained, but hilarious at the same time. Like you did the thing that I think I was either too close or I just didn't, I didn't give it the kind of real thought that it needed and worked it out, but it was the thing that I could not bring myself to do. Wow. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're Irish. I'm <laughs> Cuban. Were you, is your family Catholic? My family kind of pretended to be Catholic. <laughs> My family's all the way Catholic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, has your relationship with religion or Catholicism changed since your mom died? I wouldn't say Catholicism, um, but when my mom died, there is a priest who did her service. I might start crying again because he was so great. And when we first went to meet with him after she died, my dad and I went together. And I was like, we'll just get through this. We'll talk about the basics, who the piano player is going to be, and da 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 And I was, like, trying to pretend it was just going to be this, like, to-do list. I walk into the rectory, immediately start crying, and I can't stop crying. And my family is very much, like, crying isn't, isn't looked well upon in my family anyway. And I just couldn't stop. And it was like we had gotten to this finish line that for a long time I thought I wanted to be across. Now that I was across, it was horrible. And it was just emotional. And um, his name is Father Lombardi. Such a great man. Such a perfect person to talk to in this time. And I just, I was like, at one point I said, sorry, I just can't, whatever. And he said, no, the crying is the unexpressed love that you still have for that person. And then I was just like, oh, you're trying to make me cry more. (laughs) But it was the perfect, like, there's a reason you're having these emotional reactions. And you're supposed to. They're allowed and they're good. And this is an awful, terrible thing that you have to you have to express yourself about. And you have to, you know, break down and cry about. And then we had this funeral for my mom where the church was full. There were so many people there that people I hadn't seen in years. My friend from grammar school, Janet Nielsen, her mom, Gail, showed up. And I had one of those moments Uh, Gail used to drive us to the roller skating rink, and you know what I mean? She was like a Petaluma mom, (laughs) but I hadn't seen her in 15 years probably. And we were all standing up at the front of the church, and I turned around because I heard like one of my uncles or something, and there was Gail Nielsen standing there. Like all of a sudden I was eight years old again, and I lost my shit. And she just grabbed me up and held me for like 10 minutes, and it was one of those things of like this is – these moments of life that are so hard are also really beautiful. Like the contrast comes in and it is unbelievable. You don't want to be there. And then another thing comes in and it's like, I've never loved Gail Nielsen more. <laughs> and she was, it was like, she was my mom. You know what I mean? She was there representing moms. Yeah. I got to give the eulogy 
um, which meant a lot to me. And I got to remind everybody right before it was over that my mom hated Ronald Reagan <laughs> and that that was the one message she would want me to leave them with. And the entire church exploded. It truly did feel like a celebration of her life. Oh, that's so beautiful, Karen. Yeah. That's so great. It was good. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your mom with us and with Love me. To. Um, what a badass. <laughs> Um, <laughs> she and, lived up. She lived up. Well, also, I do love that this is the way you and I kind of got to know each other. Yeah. We're part of this club that no one wants to be in. Yeah, <laughs> and we should get to talk about it. Never get into this club. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything uh, with me today. I've always looked up to you in such a way. I feel like we're both, you know, our comedians that started in San Francisco, and you are a Mount Rushmore <gasps> comedian to me thank today. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're the best. Thanks. <laughs> Karen co-hosts My Favorite Murder and also has another great podcast called Do You Need a Ride? And that's a wrap on Scattered. Again, thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Jeremy Bloom and Megan Cunane for their help on this episode. Our theme song is Please Won't Please by Elado Negro, courtesy of Revenge International. Revenge International.